real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Welcome back, everybody. Nathan Romus with you. Uh, and today, we're going to have a bit of a focus on the topic of sex crimes, uh, the offenders and victims, and some pieces of education and awareness in there. For this, I've got Heidi Chance on the program. Heidi is a retired law enforcement professional from the Phoenix Police. She spent over 13 years working undercover as a detective investigating sex crimes involving adult and juvenile victims. Heidi has testified as an expert witness and is a subject matter expert in sex trafficking. She has provided training and education to communities, child safety departments, probation, jails, corrections, just to name a few. Also, Heidi developed an eight-hour advanced detective training course that is featured online for the Arizona Peace Officers Standards and Training Board on the subject of human trafficking. Since 2014, she has traveled and taught on these subjects for the National Justice Training Center of Fox Valley Technical College, and she is the creator and co—sorry, uh, creator and founder of ChanceConsultingLeo.com, and has a community blog posted at AChanceForAwareness.com. So, welcome, Heidi. Thank you so much. Uh, let's start kind of at the beginning and uh, tell us about yourself and um, kind of growing up and what led you into policing? Well, um, I am a Phoenician, which means I was born in Phoenix, Arizona, which is actually kind of rare because um, a lot of people come here to Arizona because of the good weather, but I, I'm actually from here, which, huh. which is, uh, you know, not, not a normal thing. Um, I'm also a third generation police officer. My dad retired also from Phoenix Police Department, and then my grandfather was NYPD. And so um, I've got it in my blood, I guess. Mm -hmm. And therefore, um, growing up, I knew, um, you know, early on that that's what I wanted to do. Um, uh, so after, you know, your, your parents and, and everybody else is involved in the policing, you know, what did, is there kind of a push for you to go into that? Or did you just see this kind of around the house and, and it kind of intrigued you? So basically my um, agency back in 1996, mm -hmm. don't do the math, how old I am. Um, basically they started a new program called the Cadet Trainee Program. And it was a program that allowed for um, 18 to 20 year olds to work for the police department in a civilian capacity. And so basically I uh, began my, my tenure as a, as a civilian cadet at 18 years old. So I graduated high school in May and I actually went through the hiring process and got hired and started with the police department in September. Wow. Um, and then was a cadet all the way up until I went to the academy and I turned 21 three weeks before I graduated the uh, actual Warren Law Enforcement Academy. Oh, wow. So as a cadet, uh, and you're still a civilian on the civilian side, uh, what were you doing as a cadet? So they had us driving a fully marked patrol car in a light blue shirt with pepper spray and a baton. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and, you know, I got flagged down on all kinds of hot calls. 
Um, we were basically responsible for uh, accidents, like just basic non-serious uh, accidents, um, dusting for fingerprints on burglary scenes where the perpetrator was already gone and people were back home, mm. um, taking crime scene photos, um, those kind of things. So, yeah. <laughs> we have a... Uh well, city where I'm from, Winnipeg, they have a cadet program. And yeah, they go to like the, the I'll say the lower priority calls, the stale B&Es and things where it's essentially the scene is, should be safe. <laughs> so, and that, yeah, obviously you're not carrying a firearm. So, um, but then you graduate from that at just before you turn 21. And then you're a full-time, uh, fully sworn in police officer. Yeah. So. Yeah, I was just needing to be the right age. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. so what's it like being 20 and policing in Phoenix? Um, you know, I definitely grew up in the precinct area that I worked as as an officer, and so I learned a lot about, you know, um it's a predominantly resident residential area, so um and it, it's in West Phoenix if you've ever been to Arizona. Um, it's, it's a very populated area that has a lot of, I, I, I always joke this and I said, the criminals go commit their crimes, but they actually live in the precinct that I work. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? And so they were always coming back to the precinct that I work. Um, but it was definitely a busy place. Um, Phoenix Police Department, uh, the city of Phoenix itself is the fifth largest city in the United States. So it's a big agency. I think when I first got on, there was, 3,200 officers. Um, we're down about 28 to 2,800 now, I think. Hmm. Yeah. You've lost a lot recently just with all the stuff going on, like all the other states. Retirement and, and, you know, the, the actual issues with, you know, being an officer these days. Mm-hmm. Um, we've definitely lost a lot just like everyone else. Yeah. And have, when you were doing your policing career in the early parts, did you ever, since you're from the area that you were actually working in, did you ever run into family or friends, like high school friends, and now you're arresting them? Um, no, no, not that much. Because Phoenix is so big. And I wasn't directly from that area. I'm saying I grew mm. up as a cop in that area. And that's why I think I stayed 10 years in patrol capacities um, in that area before I decided to move. And that's one of the things that, Sometimes I regret in my career that I didn't move around enough and I didn't get to know other areas of the police department. I, I basically went to two, two areas of the police department my entire 23-year career. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, in patrol, I did do a couple of other different things. Um, there was a position called community action officer. And so we um, were responsible for community complaints, neighbor disputes running block watch meetings, those kind of things. And then I also was a school, school resource officer um, for a number of years um, and then decided to go to the other unit where I became a detective. Okay. Uh, what was training like? Actually, maybe I'll even start a bit before that. Like, What was recruiting like and, and going through the process to get in? Was it in the 90s, I guess? Um, yeah, in the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> the late 90s, yeah. Um, it was, um, when I first, uh, it was a written exam. When I first took the test, there was, a, it was at the civic center and it was just tables of uh, like a thousand people. Oh wow! And I, I don't even know how I made it 
for that cadet program, there was only five people who made it um, through the process to get hired. Um, and so, and it was a new program for the police department. And so I got badge number two and I'm the first female of the cadet program. But then I didn't have to retest. I didn't have to retake those. So the written exam or the, um, you know, some of the tests because I was already working for the police department when I went into the academy. Okay. I just had to refresh my physical fitness test and then obviously a updated polygraph. But it's similar to other agencies, I'm sure, where there's, you know, the written exam, the physical fitness test, the psychological, the polygraph, the medical background investigation, and then you're good to go. Mm-hmm. And so when you get into the actual uh, police service, it's just now it's it's a, basically an easier transition, right? So you do less to do. Yeah, it was definitely an easier transition. Um, I pretty much went from the academy to uh, like a pre-hire position and then into, um, I'm sorry, from cadet to pre-hire to the academy and then sworn. Mm-hmm. And so. Well, and when you're going into the full police officer mode is what's the training like from cadet to that? So um, there was an, there was a cadet academy that was like three weeks. And then you were with a like a field training officer for a long period of time because it was a new program and they didn't know what to do with us. And we were 18 <laughs> driving fully marked patrol cars. So we had to be... Yeah. <laughs> we were on a, um, an FTO squad. But then when I was sworn, same thing as everyone else. Um, there's, you know, the academy itself, I think was 16, year, 16 weeks back then. I'm not sure how it's expanded now because when I went through, it was basically Phoenix specific um, academy and then I'm sorry it was a state type of academy and then you have to go to the Phoenix specific um, you know city of Phoenix statutes and and codes and and training and specifically with the way that they do business mm-hmm. so it comes like two academies and then you're out on uh, with your FTO okay so as you're kind of going through your career um, you're saying like you spend a lot of time in the patrol side of things and then you move to uh, basically the whole latter half of your career is going to be in the sex crimes realm. So it was called Vice. Okay. When I first tested for the position and it was basically, it's an undercover unit and they deal with um, prostitution Mm -hmm. and sex trafficking. So it turned into the human exploitation and trafficking unit a couple of years ago. So I would say it was vice for like the first six or seven years of, of me being there. And then the latter half of the 13 and a half years I was in the unit, it was, they changed the name, but the function of the unit was the same mm-hmm. um, to uh, basically do proactive operations, targeting buyers and traffickers, make arrests related to prostitution. Um, and then, um, there's complaints that come in from everywhere, yeah. um, from silent witness. We had our own vice hotline from the national center of missing exploited children from Polaris project, um, and other non-governmental organizations. All of, I mean, we had, we had nine detectives when I left and, you know, for the fifth largest city in the United States, it's a lot of work mm-hmm. The nine detectives. So they're super, super busy. And, Maybe an interesting point. Uh, this 
the units names down in the states are the exact same as they are up here. Oh, really? So I don't know. Somebody's copying somebody. Yeah. But I imagine everybody just shares a lot of the, you know, the studies and the stats and the intel. Like it, it's it translates across borders. I always found that pretty cool about this job is just how similar it can be. Um, and it, for a bunch of the American guests I've had on the show now, um, yeah, there's just, it, it's so many similarities, but I think a lot of people like to know that there's others out there kind of dealing with the same issues. Um, plus you can just learn a lot more. You've got that many more people kind of working on the problems. So yeah, sex trafficking is a worldwide problem. Yes. Uh, so, uh, before you got into vice, was there anything throughout your career, maybe in patrol or one of the areas like as an SRO, is there something, uh, one or a bunch of things that you came across that made you interested in that or wanted to go that direction? Yeah. So oddly enough, um, as a school resource officer, um, you know, you take the car from the police station to the school and then return the car every day. Mm. And so I remember one day going back to the police station and there was a girl that I had recognized from when she was a middle schooler and 14 years old, a couple of years had passed. And here I see her in the juvenile holding area of the police station and she's in some trouble, kind of giving attitude to the patrol officer. She recognizes me. Um, and then we sit down and talk for a little bit. She kind of disclosed what was going on with her. Mm-hmm. And she, uh, she talked about having a trafficker and how he was having a prostitute. And even though I had been a cop already for six or seven years, by the time I, um, you know, realized this, but she really brought me to the point where um, I knew, obviously, prostitution is a crime, but I didn't realize it was happening to kids as young as 15, 16 years old or younger. And so that's when, and this was about 2007, 2008, and that's when I decided to start doing temporary assignments and shadowing the vice unit because they're the ones who were undercover investigating that type of crime. And so she really, um, you know, inspired me to look into that more and, and see if that was something that I wanted to focus my career on. And that's mm. what I ended up doing. Okay. Um, so from that point on, is it, um, you start shadowing in this unit and then are you like applying to be in undercover or do you go to vice first and then you kind of work on that component after? So um, the unit itself is highly competitive. And so you have to test for the position. So you, you already have to be a detective, which is like an outside class that you take kind of like a college class on your own time oh. outside of. Okay. Um, and I already went through that process early on in my career, which is a suggestion I would make for everyone to do that early on in your career. So then that when you're ready to move on to another squad or another uh, bureau, you can automatically go in and don't have to, you know, Oh yeah, I got to go be detective certified. Mm -hmm. I would get that. But that's, that's what I did and I already had it. And then, so when I started doing shadows and temporary assignments to see if this was something I really wanted to do, that's when I um, started being an undercover decoy posing as a prostitute or an escort in a hotel room when they were running operations. And that would just be my day when I was doing a temporary assignment with them. And then I tested for the position um, and uh, ended up getting temporarily assigned for six months. 
and then had to get sent back to patrol and test again. Uh, when you're doing the undercover stuff, and I'm not looking for like uh, any techniques or anything to just talk about, but uh, when you're doing that type of work, have you ever had a situation where you're face to face with somebody and you're like, oh, this could go kind of sideways or this is really uncomfortable. Maybe they're just that creepy. Um, imagine there's a lot of different scenarios you can be in. Yeah. So it's definitely an issue of, you know, officer safety. Anytime we do any undercover operation, whether it's out on the street and I'm just walking down the street acting like a prostitute. I mean, I've got vehicles to pull up on me. I've had vehicles try and reach out. I'm sorry, buyers uh, trying to reach out and grab me and touch me in inappropriate places, mm. those kind of things. Um, there's definitely surveillance around and eyes on us for officer safety. And then we have visual and verbal signals to indicate mm-hmm. to take action if needed. Um, that's all brief uh, in advance of the operation. Um, but definitely I've had you know, people I've arrested before recognize me, even though I do what I can to change up what I look like. I put on wigs and stuff. And <laughs> So you, outside of the job, when you're just walking around a store and somebody's recognized you? Um, you know, I think a lot of cops do the same thing I do. I do not live anywhere near where I work. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> even though it means an hour commute for me, I think it's worth it. Yeah, well, certainly. Um you know what's but you get that feeling where I recognize somebody and I'm not sure why, and that's not a good feeling. Mm-hmm. You had that before. Even in the fifth largest city, it's still a small world. I'm sure you can run into people, you know, unex- unexpectedly. So, yeah. Uh, when you're dealing, uh, so you get into vice, and I guess on this side of things, you're mainly dealing with offenders at this time, not so much on the victim side. Yeah, so the whole unit was very, when I first went there, and this is 2008, and it it was focused on misdemeanor arrests. Um, There wasn't a lot of, you know, targeting traffickers back then. It was arresting prostitutes, and it was arresting buyers, Mm -hmm. and that was the focus. Um, There was an incident in Phoenix that um, was, I think it got national attention, it was an incident involving a girl that was held in a dog crate and men would come to have sex with her at this apartment and then she'd be put back in the dog crate. It was a runaway missing juvenile. And patrol had went to the apartment looking for her multiple times and they, the people who suspect male and a female, also in their early 20s, um, oh. this girl was juvenile, had basically made like a, like a, almost like a waterbed, but it was, so the mattress and then underneath the bed was this locked uh, wooden area that this girl was also kept. And so um, definitely when she was rescued and all of that came out and, you know, it really, really shined a light on, you know, trafficking of another person mm-hmm. in the victim side. And that's definitely where the focus kind of shifted, in my opinion, at least for my agency. And it was more focused then on victims and um, targeting traffickers. I mean, still, obviously, we have to satisfy the complaints in the community about the buyers and the prostitutes walking down the side of the road. But it was definitely a change in seeing victims as victims and actually that whole dynamic of the crime itself, uh, sex trafficking and forced fraud and coercion, those elements of the crime um, and and how they affect the victim. Well, one thing you 
said they're the the offenders were in their twenties. Yeah. So is there uh, uh, any sort of rhyme or reason as to who does these types of offenses or why they do them? No. Or is it just everybody and anyone? <laughs> um, there's definitely not a demographic. It's you know I've arrested female pimps, male pimps. Um, I've arrested you know pimps in their seventies, pimps in their twenties, uh, mm-hmm. even juvenile pimps. Um, there isn't a demographic or any to either to the offender or the victim. Have you ever talked with any of them after the fact and ever heard of or even heard of uh, like a common theme as to why someone would get into that crime type? I haven't talked to them, but I can tell you I've arrested a lot of traffickers' parents, um, their mothers Mm. for getting involved in intimidating witnesses and interfering with the investigation. And then I've had a lot of traffickers where you know, I recognize the last name and their, their father was a trafficker also. Okay. And so there is definitely a familial dynamic, I think, to trafficking and, um, you know, being around that as a young person and then growing up with that as like a behavior that's going on in their family dynamic that they, you know, become. Yeah, it's almost like a, an access to it, right? So, you know, if my parents are just doing frauds all day. That's kind of what I learn at the the world I'm around. Well, if they're doing this type of crime, that's what I'm going to learn. So yeah, there's something to be said about that for sure. I can see that. So uh, maybe staying on the offender side, uh, where where does most of this happen? So when we're talking about whether it's uh, actually trafficking in physical people or we're selling them for a specific reason, uh, where does this all kind of occur? So the mm-hmm. there's two things you said there. Traffic, human trafficking in in the federal definition in the United States is defined as labor, forced labor, or forced sex sexual exploitation. But we also have human smuggling. Mm. So when you were talking about people movement movement of people, that's definitely different. Human smuggling is okay. a crime against the border, whereas human trafficking through forced sex or forced labor as a crime against an actual person. Um, so definitely it is both, both things are happening uh, all over, you know, the United States and the world and specifically to sex trafficking, which is what I am most familiar with as far as my work. Um, sex trafficking happens. Um, it, it is very like fluid. They, they definitely move their victims a lot. Um, one, not to get caught by the police, but two, to keep their victim kind of isolated so that they don't get to know anyone, to talk to them, to tell them what's happening to them. Okay. Because that person would be a normal person that would try and get them safe and convince them to leave um, their trafficker. So they're very transit. They're moving from city to city, state to state. Sometimes they're following major events. Like we have Super Bowl coming up here in Arizona. In February, yeah, and we posted it multiple times. I participated in the two other Super Bowls we've had here, and for sure, there's an increase in trafficking coming for the large events, especially events where there potentially would be a lot of buyers market. I mean, there would be a lot of mm. men attending a football Super Bowl event, or we host the golf tournament here also. Um, so they're very transient; they move a lot. Um, so it's it's 
happening out on the streets and it's happening online. Yeah, and you know what? I never thought of that. I guess you don't want them to, you don't want the the victim of it to develop a relationship with somebody. Like all of a sudden you become a regular client and then people start learning about you. Either that or even the hotel desk clerk, you know, Mm. the hotel desk clerk has eyes too. And they, you know, we've done a lot of training actually to the hospitality service because of trafficking occurring so much out of hotels. And so they recognize the signs. And so traffickers want to limit their victims contact with anyone who could potentially talk them out of continuing to do what they're doing for the trafficker. So can you kind of run through just how an investigation might start, like what it would look like from start to finish, just a real broad without, you know. Yeah. So a lot of times, and you know, there are several different ways that we come across victims, but sometimes it's patrol, like patrol has contact with them out on the street and they disclose that they want help. And so then patrol would contact detectives. Um, there's two detectives on call 24 mm. seven. And so we'd respond in from home no matter what time it is. Um, and then there's also obviously the proactive operations where we would locate a victim and then they, you know, are kind of in some trouble and they want to get out of the life. And so we're able to offer them assistance right then. Um, as far as investigations involving minors, those are immediate drop everything, start the case, let's say patrol watches a vehicle pull over and a girl gets in and it's a sex buyer picking up a girl and they contact them, interview them separately. And um, she, let's say, talks about how it was a, a offer or agreement for a sex act in exchange for, you know, money, mm-hmm. then the, the prostitution. And, and basically we no longer have to prove knowledge of age. So I don't have to prove anymore that that buyer knew this was a 15 year old just because she's dressed to attract, wearing a bunch of makeup, looks older than she is. If she's 15, she's 15, and that person's going to be in trouble for more than a misdemeanor now. Yeah. It's a felony, and they get you know charged. But there's more than that dynamic there. So everyone gets transported to get interviewed, um, and then um, the process starts with whatever the victim discloses. If the victim, victim's completely cooperative and says, yeah, I've been held up in such and such hotel, then we would send investigators over to that hotel, start surveillance on it, hold the hotel room, find out who it's registered to, all of those things, mm-hmm. and then move forward to continuing getting information from the victim, how long they've been with this trafficker, where else have they traveled to, um, you know, how does this all work? Are they posted up online? Do they have to walk the streets? Are there other juveniles? All kinds of things. And so... That's kind of how it begins. And then taking the information the victim gives plus the follow-up we conduct to put the case together. Because these cases are really not hard. I'm not, not easy to prove because it's a matter of this person's word against the suspect's word a lot of times. Because we're going to have a witness. Yeah. And so the cooperative evidence of the hotel records, the witness at the hotel, the hotel clerk, staff, whoever, phone records. DNA evidence, those kind of things all tell the story to help put the case together to prosecute a trafficker. Yeah, definitely a complex investigation. So um, <laughs> you, before we kind of got to uh, doing the podcast, you had sent an email there with like a really memorable case. Did you want to kind of talk about that here? Yeah, sure. Yeah, could you kind of run through that one? 
Yeah. So in the 13 and a half years I was in that unit, um, in the human trafficking unit, I had a investigation that actually took five years to, to complete. Um, it started in about 2010 with a 16 year old that came forward about her uncle. So it was familial trafficking, which a lot of people don't recognize. Most people think that traffickers are strangers or people that uh, the victim doesn't know, but actually there's a, a stat out there that says 40% of victims actually know their, their trafficker or they're sold by a family member. Hmm. So this juvenile, um, her uncle basically started offending on her when she was 13. Um, and she was with him from 13 to 16. And on the day that she decided to tell her older sister what was going on, he basically indicated to her that he was going to offend on her younger sister. So she's 16 that day. Her younger sister is the same age, 13, that she was when he first um, started offending on her. And so she basically wasn't going to allow that to happen. And so that's when she um, told her sister to call the police. So when that all came out, um, it took five years for us to figure out, and it's not us to figure out, five years of investigative things with locating additional victims. We found seven victims. There was a second juvenile, his um, stepdaughter, who was 17. And her mother um, was a former Department of Corrections officer, oh. an officer at the prison. And she was in her 40s when she got uh, lost her job, got into drugs, and then met him and began uh, sex trafficking and the lifestyle in her 40s. Um, so like I had said earlier, <laughs> there is no demographic on age or race or yeah. male, female. But anyways, basically seven victims, the rest were adults, the two juveniles. Um, and then there was, um, you know, he had this brothel basically going on out of his house. There was video surveillance footage. There was DNA evidence. There was advertisements posted online. Um, back then it was backpage.com, mm. all of those things. And then it went to trial. And the trial itself lasted seven months. Um, he was charged with 130 initial accounts of child sex trafficking, aggravated assault, um, you know, other crimes. But then uh, when it finally went to the jury and after the seven months, the jury deliberated on 105 counts. And the purpose for that is because if victims, because it took so long, five years, mm -hmm. if victims can't recall the details that they reported to me five years ago and they can't testify to it in court, then it, it, it goes away. And we can't even, if they don't remember it and they can't speak to it, um, then it didn't happen. Yeah. And so 105 counts, though, went to the jury and he was found guilty on 101. And then the judge sentenced him to 493.5 years in prison, which is, I think, a record in the United States for getting sent to prison. So um, he certainly deserves every day that he got. And, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate also that um, my victim, she was 16 when she first disclosed. She was in her 20s when we went to trial. And I spent a lot of time with her in that seven months. And I feel like she's kind of stuck mentally at 16 like she mm -hmm. you know doesn't drive she doesn't have a job um you know she's kind of stuck and that's definitely an area that needs some focus as far as far as her being a survivor and getting you know help right right away mm -hmm. um 
when all this was going on, we didn't have this. But what we have now is um, a victim advocate that's actually assigned to the unit that will go out on operations, you know, at 10 o'clock at night, 2 o'clock in the morning, and is right there available to take a victim aside and say, what can we do to help you get out of this? Offer, you know, a bus ticket, offer a shelter ride, um, you know, all of those victim services things right then in the moment of her rescue, his or her rescue. And that is something that's, you know, definitely been a beneficial thing that we didn't have before. Because mm-hmm. if we had that before, maybe my victim would have been, you know, more mature or more through therapy, through her experience, through what happened to her, her trauma. Have you ever, uh, after one of these types of investigations, have you ever had any subsequent interaction with either the offender or victim? Um, yeah, I have uh, specifically that victim. Um, we're Facebook friends. We talk yeah. you know, every now and again on Facebook. Um, as far as offenders, I have had offenders do a public records request for my personnel file. Mm. Uh, one in particular, I don't know if he's writing a book about me or if he's sending someone after me, but bring it on. Mm. Um, yeah, you definitely have to take steps to redact your information and protect yourself. Yeah. Um, because these people are, you know, they're intimidators and they work off of, you know, making people scared and I don't scare easy. <laughs> yeah. So you definitely have to, you know, take steps even early on in your career. I would suggest redacting your information. Um, remember when you open up a new credit card or you buy a vehicle or a new house, all that stuff comes back on the internet and you got to get pulled back off. So uh, are you able to talk a bit about how these victims get groomed into this lifestyle? Maybe Uh, a bit of how people like either kind of rule by fear or, you know, what, what are the things they do to get someone into this area? Yeah. So, um, specifically traffickers use the internet now because it's more easier to kind of cast a bunch of fishing lines with bait on them and, Mm -hmm. you know, see the bait. And so I've had traffickers, um, you know, I have, Six Facebook, three Instagram, tag, meet me, Bumble, Plenty of Fish, Snapchat, Twitter, all in undercover accounts so that I can have a trafficker try and recruit me instead of a live person. Mm-hmm. So I've witnessed their their game. Yeah. So specifically, they will, you know, try and compliment you. They will try and, um, you know, almost learn things about you like they're interested in a relationship, but Really, they're gathering that information so they can use it later. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of a tell, especially these dating apps. Um, you know, there's some concern there with people, you know, just being completely open on dating apps and letting whoever the stranger is, even though they're complimenting you, you're letting them know personal information about you. Um, but I always tell people, you know, obviously, you, you, that, that stage of it, you're not going to be able to tell. But when they start offering to come pick you up or take you home, they want to know where you live. Uh, I would protect that information as long as you can as you get to know this person. Um, because the reason they're doing that is because they want to be able to use that against you. Um, they want to know about your parents, where they work, what kind of car they drive, if you have younger siblings, where they go to school, how old they are, all those things. Um, and then when they do have you kind of in a relationship or thinking that you're with them, um, that's when they introduce this idea that, 
you know, things cost money and I really need help with this. And, you know, this whole catchphrase of we got to stay down before we can come up. Hmm. Um, they convince the person to, uh, you know, do things like have sex with other people for money and then give that money to them. And that money is, you know, for the both of us, it's for, you know, our future. And they really are good about manipulating victims into thinking that life's going to be amazing. We just have to do this right now. Mm-hmm. It's only going to be a little while. A little while really isn't a little while. It lasts, you know, weeks, months, years. But it's all for this. We're going to get a house. I'm going to take you traveling. We're going to go to Las Vegas. I'm going to, you know, get you a car. All those promises, those false promises that never really happen. And victims, before you know it, are in this situation. They're stuck with this person. Um, they've been isolated so much from their family that their family, you know, doesn't feel a connection with them anymore. They don't have that support anymore because the traffickers really do make it be a situation where you're completely dependent on them on purpose mm-hmm. because that's part of the tool and the manipulation. And, you know, if you're a juvenile, you're 14, 15 years old, you don't have an ID, they've taken you to another state. You don't, people don't remember phone numbers anymore. So you, even if you had access to your phone, um, you know, the traffickers controlling that, controlling your social media, um, you know, how do you call home? How do you get out of there? How do you fly home? How do you go anywhere without ID? And so it really becomes a situation where there's hopelessness, there's shame, and there's just this feeling of being stuck. And they just do what they do to survive with this person. And, and that's, you know, the reality of it and months turn into years. Wow. I know one thing we see quite a bit here, maybe it's more just because we are, I'm so involved with the gang side of stuff and organized crime, but you get a lot of people that'll uh, acquire services of one of these girls or uh, one of the victims, but now it's turning out they're not so much the victim. They're actually like a part of the crime. So you go to a hotel room or you bring them to your house or somewhere thinking that you're getting sexual services and then all of a sudden three or four dudes show up at your door with guns and they rob you for all your stuff. So that seems to be the one of the things I come across quite a bit. So it's like this offense type is used to basically further other types of offenses. And there's actually a lot of the girls right now that are uh, just as involved in it. So talking about kind of two different things, but similar crime type, or at least the uh, the guise of it. Yeah, we definitely have that here. I mean, um, there are, you know, the robberies happening. There are um, drug sales, like a lot of traffickers will use their victims to sell drugs. Yeah. Definitely this, this whole sex trafficking realm or crime is not just by itself. I mean, I call these incidents, um, you know, like Pandora's box. Mm. It is, you know, this crime led to this. There's an arson. There's a robbery. There's a stolen vehicle. That's really all of that was bottled down to the buyer picked up the girl on the side of the road mm-hmm. or invited to his hotel room and all this stuff happened. And that's definitely happening everywhere. Can you talk a bit about the work you've done with some of the victims? So you were doing some interviewing, specific type of interviewing with them? Yeah, so all of our detectives are forensic interviewers, and so we um, conduct interviews with trauma-informed and victim-centered approaches, and, um, you know, with the intent of 
taking care of the victim, making sure that it's the right time. Um, I like, like I said, that investigation that I did, it took, you know, five years. I learned information, you know, years later that I could act on. So it isn't anything that has to happen right then, unless there's an uh, exigent circumstance that there's another victim at that hotel room that, you know, we need to also go rescue. Then it would be more of a, you know, we need to handle this right now type of thing. Mm-hmm. But definitely, um, you know, a lot of work with victims as far as using, um, you know, the victim advocates, survivor victim advocates to help. Um, we have a lot of resources. Um, some traffickers put a brand or a tattoo on their victims. So we have an organization that helps with removing that tattoo or that brand. Oh. I mean, we have a lot of partners, mm-hmm. I would say, um, that, that all work together to help this problem. And, and definitely it's not just a law enforcement only problem. It's a community problem. We need everyone's help to, um, you know, eradicate it. Yeah. Well, and one of the previous guests I had on here, and uh, he works with the uh, in a victim identification unit within our national exploitation center. And uh, he talked a lot about working with Interpol and Europol, and just how, like, with the internet, just everything's so tra- it's all transferred so easily. Um, whether it's images, but then you talk about you know moving people around for labor or sex crimes, like it's it's international and it's it's a massive scope of things and you have like thousands of people from hundreds of different organizations working on this so it's it's quite the uh, undertaking i guess and like you're saying some of these investigations can go on for quite some time so um yeah it's it's good to talk about these things and shed some light on them because of that like maybe they we need to focus more on certain types of crimes you know um so one thing that kind of brings me to is talking to you about some of your subject matter expert work. Um, is that a part of later in your career or is that mostly the stuff you do now? Um, so I, I, I have testified, obviously, um, before I retired multiple times. So that because what we found is that bringing in an expert witness to kind of explain the lifestyle and the dynamic of trafficking is important for a jury to hear mm-hmm. because, you know, when I'm trying to say this person's a victim, but they're freely walking down the side of the road with a phone in their hand, they're not handcuffed to, you know, the bad guy or locked in a closet or a room somewhere. They're, they're free, but yet they're still trapped. That whole dynamic needs to be explained to jury. Yeah. And so that's where I would testify there. And then I also you know, obviously do a lot of training for law enforcement. And that's why I started my own consulting business because I want to, uh, you know, encourage other agencies, even small agencies to do undercover operations to target buyers and traffickers, just like I was doing because we did it with nine people. Even though we're a big police agency, smaller agencies can do it too. Mm -hmm. And so because trafficking is everywhere, we need to have law enforcement response in proactive ways everywhere and so that's my one of my focuses as far as my my own business so can you uh explain a little bit about how you get classified as a subject matter expert for uh, court purposes um mostly it's just being recognized by the judges and the um you know the prosecutors Mm -hmm. as, as you know they will sometimes they'll call you in as a blind witness meaning you don't know anything about the investigation on purpose because there can't be any 
you know, argument from the defense saying that, you know, you're saying these things on purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll come in and testify to the lifestyle of sex trafficking, not realizing the case that, you know, is, is before the jury and the judge is a sex trafficking case. Yeah. And um, I think that's a part of policing that a lot of people don't get exposure to. Um, but certainly, obviously, the public might not have a clue what a subject matter expert is. And um, I, maybe my interpretation of it would be somebody who's just more knowledgeable on that specific subject. Like you've either taken a lot of courses on it, you've been a part of it through policing. Um, sometimes you could have even had personal experience in something like whether it's drugs, gangs, or in um, these crime types. So when you can just speak enough to a subject, answer enough of these questions, then you're seen by the courts, you're recognized as kind of having that elevated knowledge and it it lends a lot of weight to like what you're saying, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, the type of work you do now, you have uh, like this uh, couple courses that you run. You created this eight-hour course um, and then you also have your own programs. Can you talk about all the work that you're doing now? Because it sounds like you're pretty busy. Yeah. So um, the eight-hour course is actually for the Arizona Peace Officers Training Standards Bureau, um, which is certified officers as sworn officers. That I did prior to retiring, and I did an eight-hour, um, you know, interviewing a victim, interrogating a suspect, um, sex trafficking 101, and then putting a case together type of thing. Um, so that there was a, you know, a well-rounded course that's actually hosted online for those officers and detectives to take. But then outside of that, after, since retiring, um, I started my TamsConsultingLeo.com. And then I have a separate website for the community called AtamsForAwareness.com. Mm-hmm. And that's where I developed a course kind of talking about all the things that we're talking about now, as far as, you know, the problem itself, defining what sex trafficking is different from human or different from human smuggling. Um, then the evolution of law enforcement and, and our response to it and how that's changed. Then victim vulnerabilities, um, how victims get groomed and, and fall into the lifestyle. And I talk about sex buyers and how sex buyers, um, you know, don't really see victims as humans. And then I talk about, traffickers then I go into the indicators and so like on my website I have um, a link to sign up for and be sent a whole list of sex trafficking indicators mm-hmm. that people can just email in and get sent the list that I created and that's based off of all of my experience all of the victim interviews I've done traffickers trying to recruit me you know personally all of those things and then um, I talk about in the course, you know, things that people can do to get involved to help with the fight. Um, just general public citizens out there, um, things that they can do. Is uh, Are you still kind of called in to do any sort of uh, SME work? Like, are you testifying still at all? So I, um, I just recently gave a training to our attorney general's office and they all, um, you know, wrote down and took my card and they're, mm-hmm. you know, if they ever have a case, they need a blind witness. Um, yes, I still will contractually go do that. Okay. Um, if I'm going to do that. Mm-hmm. Because you're still pretty heavily involved in this world and 
obviously if you're training other people, I'll see why you couldn't, we'll call it train uh, the judge or a jury on the, the, the subject matter. <laughs> so. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I almost retired in October of 21. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So still in the game. Um, uh, how busy are you with all the consulting and, and have you been traveling around for it or do you do most of it locally? Yeah. So I, um, I do travel around um, all over the United States giving training and then I also do online. So like I have an agency that's hiring me to train their female officers on how to do undercover conversations with buyers and traffickers. Um, and so that's because it's in Pennsylvania. It's around the holidays. It's about to happen. I'm going to, you know, do that online, but definitely I'm available to do all of that. Okay. I could even come to another country. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I know they have, you know, this is a worldwide thing and they got um, all these types of units are uh, in all these major police services up here too. So I, I don't know where they get their training from though, <laughs> but yeah. um, maybe they'll listen to this and they'll shoot you a message or an email or something. Yeah. Uh, where would be the best place for people to follow you or your work? So I have my website at chanceforawareness.com. Mm-hmm. And other website, chanceconsultingleo.com. And then um, I have an Instagram, a chance for awareness. I'm on LinkedIn under mm-hmm. Heidi Chance, um, all of those places. Is there uh, anything you think we didn't kind of cover that you want to make sure we talk about? I think we kind of got through most of the stuff looking at the list here. Yeah, I think, I think we went through everything. Um, since most of your. Uh, your listeners are law enforcement. Um, definitely, hopefully that, you know, the suggestion I made about redacting your information and make yourself mm-hmm. safe is definitely something that, you know, a lot of officers don't think about until later in their career when they're already all over the internet mm-hmm. uh, and their information is shared everywhere. So really definitely do something to take care of that yeah. for yourself. And then my second piece of advice is when I, but starting to retire, I didn't realize how cool LinkedIn was. And LinkedIn really is, um, you know, a connection, networking location, you know, for your life after yes. your original police job. So definitely develop your LinkedIn page. Um, so then that way you can, you know, have a lot of options when you decide to move to your second half of your life, your second career. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like an online resume of sorts and yeah. lots of good connections through there. That's how I get uh, a lot of people that I meet through uh, there I have on the podcast. So how we <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So people can look you up there and I'll, I'll make sure to throw a lot of these links and um, the website into the, the podcast description. Um, but yeah, I think we'll kind of wrap it up there and I'll just get you to hang on the line, uh, but I'll stop the recording. All right. Thank you so much.